Welcome to another episode of Adventures in.net. I'm Sean Klebo, your host, and with me are your co-hosts, Caleb Wells. Hey y'all. And Wailu. Hey Wai. Going good. And we have a good guest today. I think some of you might have be familiar with him. His name is Mark Miller. Hey Mark. How you doing? Hey, I'm all right. I'm so glad to be here with you guys. I am a good guest Thanks. today. I'm going to be on my best behavior. Oh, I promise. <laughs> that's, oh. that's no fun. No, no, it's going to be good. And it's not, not like those other podcasts when I've been a guest on those other ones. Whoa. All those other podcasts, they, they had to close down after I was a guest. But you guys, <laughs> you're going to keep going. I know it. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. So Mark, okay. can you, for the people who don't know you, can you can you tell them a little bit about yourself? Sure. I think at first glance, I appear to be kind of an older guy. I'm uh, I'm like in my fifties. I've been programming since I was about sixteen, so it's about almost four decades of writing code. And as a result, I'm kind of a mix of incredible wisdom and a, a strong sense of what to do, what you know, what the right way it is to solve a problem, and even. I have a specialty of kind of solving the problem when everybody in the room says, oh, that's impossible. We can't do it. I can often come up with an economically feasible way to do it. So I'm a mix of those good qualities, but also a mix of a little bit of old school, right? Often I'm like, my first impulse is let's do it all from scratch. Let's write it all ourselves, right? This new thing that there's already something out there, you know, out there for. And I'm like, oh, but yeah. there are benefits to writing it from scratch. So I'm kind of a mix of those things. I work at DevExpress. I manage the CodeRush and the IDE tools teams. We, we make CodeRush, which is an add-in for Visual Studio. It's an extension for Visual Studio and it helps developers write code faster. And also the code they write is higher quality code. So that's, mm -hmm. those are the problems we try to solve. More efficient creation of higher quality code in that product. And um, we also have offshoots of that CodeRush server, which uses the uh, analytics uh, engine from CodeRush and is available in Azure DevOps space. And we also have a free plugin for VS Code called RushNav, which you can search for R-U-S-H-N-A-V. And that is free. And it's got a number of CodeRush features that we're bringing over to VS Code. And that's kind of that's me in a nutshell. Well, I also have expertise in good UI. I've been researching that for uh, good design and good UI for about 13 years. Awesome. So I, I think, you know, kind of what brought us together was the, the talk that you gave at .NET Conf, and that was about the science of great UI. So you actually have right. some science that, that can back up what makes up great UI? Yeah, in fact, it's all it's all science. It's like I want to I want to slap you when you ask me that question. What, you have some science. It's I got a whole bunch of science. Take that. I want to make a sound effect. You can do the reaction. There you go. Take that. Whoa. There you go. There you go. Hey, Mark. Yeah, no. I feel you though. My background's actually in graphic design. That's what my degree oh, yeah? is in. So yeah. 
So I, I can see both both sides of it. So I'm I'm right there with you. Your uh, .NET Conf video was was spot on. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, it is. From my perspective, it's all science. Every choice has to be explainable in some way, right? The the uh, the problem is there's so much data, uh, sparse data out there. You know, study here, a study there, cognitive science. You know, studies these kinds of things. But nobody pulls that back and then now says, okay, here's now the recommendation for how close a border needs to be to the text. Or here's now a recommendation on whether buttons need to have rounded corners or, or square corners, things like that. And, and I feel like the, the value to the work that I've done and the conclusions I've reached is that I bring that bridge between all of these studies that are that are out there, all this, the studies of the brain, how, how the brain works, plus a knowledge of how we, uh, I want to say trigger the brain, but basically maybe the better word is exploit the natural behavior of the mind to more efficiently get people to consume the information. So now instead of fighting the way the information is presented, the information is naturally presented, presented in a way that it is naturally then interpreted by the human and understood. Because the world is filled with conflicts between the way we naturally assume things are to be and the way they actually are. Um, a real simple example of this is if you get into a, an elevator and the labels for the buttons happen to be right between the buttons, equidistant between two different unlabeled buttons, right? Sometimes you'll see this. You'll see a, a button that has no label on it on one side of the label and another button with, which also is unlabeled in the, in the label right between them. And so there, that, that's incredibly hard to figure out. So you have to like, you know, zoom back out, take a look at everything and see, oh, okay, on the far left edge, I see only labels. And on the far right edge, I see only buttons. And so therefore, the labels must be to the left of the buttons. Well, at this point, I'm not hitting the button. I'm still trying to figure out the user interface, right? And you have these kinds of problems where instead of exploiting our natural tendency to assume that two things close together are related, we kind of do the opposite sometimes when we're designing things. We put things that are related far apart, as an example. So from this understanding of cognitive science, the way the brain works and the way we, we take what we sense and what, we, what our natural assumptions are from what we sense in the world, right? then we're able to then come up with rules and guidelines for how to make great, great design, great user interfaces. So you mentioned about it's all science. So you've mentioned studies, you know, academic papers and things like that. So are there, are there other evidence as well, like, you know, A-B testing or, or things like that that, 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 you, that you use to conclude the best No, way? I actually, I do not use any A-B testing, but I have seen that A-B testing often will reach the same conclusion as the guidelines. Mm -hmm. The difference is, is the A-B testers don't understand why. The people that are using the A-B testers don't, uh, the, the, the A-B test results uh, they get to something that solves their problem, like more sales, more yeah. registrations, more signups for the newsletter, whatever yeah. it is, but they don't understand why, sure. right? Which is another way of, of getting there, right? Mm. The, the, the difference, though, is that it's more expensive, generally, to use A-B testing than it is to just understand the rules and make the right choices to start with. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I can, sure. If I... If, because I'm, I'm, there's fewer iterations with the dev team. If the dev team does it right the 
first time, we don't have to keep iterating and refining all the way. And an- another way of looking at it is if the dev team gets really close to whatever you want to call desirable end result, perfect, or whatever it is, if we get really close because we make the right decisions mm. along the way, then our A-B testing is actually now looking at more interesting things. Mm. generally like right not so much on, guess, so. yeah not so much design but maybe other things right so. that sort of thing but but ultimately like here's another example like of good design you want the path to be shorter for things that you want people to do a lot of like if mm. i want people to buy things i want the path to be shorter right a lot of times a b testing won't put that in as a two different test results often a b testing is about a same distance path but we're showing you maybe a bigger button in this path and a smaller button in the other for example mm. right so we're doing that right but often a b testing nobody sits around that i know of that sits around and says wait let's try an a b test with a shorter path right mm-hmm. where we're able to somehow have the cart right on screen for example instead and the buy button right on screen all mm-hmm. the time might be an example and so if i want to buy all i have to do is click the buy button, right? Speaking of which, Amazon's got a great example of it. They've got the buy now button, right? Which is the shorter path. So A-B testing can kind of get you there. And if you're really creative and asking the right questions, it can totally get you there. But it's, I think just, it takes a little bit longer. You need to have the, the numbers out there. You need to have folks out there, right? To support that. You need to be building something that lives in a world where you can do the A-B testing and getting the results. But I think, it's, I think A-B testing is super valuable. But, I, but, but so in all the analysis that I've done of it, I always come back to the conclusion that the conclusion that they reached, the decisions they made after the A-B testing were the ones that they should have made at the beginning of that. They known the rules. Sure. Yeah. Gotcha. So something that I'm, I always think about when I do design is like the more closely correlated two things are on the page the closer they should be together. Yes. That's, so I call that a proximity guideline. And if, so if things are closely related, they should be together. And we go back to the elevator example where the label for the button, fourth floor, is between two buttons, one that takes me to the third floor and one that takes me to the fourth floor, for example, right? So we want to move the label closer, right? You can put it underneath it, for example, but really, really close. For example, if you were blind and reaching out with your fingers, if you're blind, the effect of that and you're touching with your fingers, you can only see a small essentially sense a small area of the interface. So having to zoom out with a blind person, you've got to go all the way to the edges and see are the labels to the left or right. But if the labels were inside the buttons, right? I want to call that like proximity zero, right? We're just right on top of it, right? Then then it's much faster to use if you're blind. It's much faster to use if you're if you have full visual capability. Mm-hmm. Right? So yeah, that that so so that's an ex- proximity guideline, and then I have proximity violations where it's a violation of the guideline, where things that are close together are farther away. You see this sometimes. Like I, I think a stoves are a good example of this. With stoves, you have four burners often, and across the front you've got four dials, right? But if you look at the average stove, the dials that that adjust the heat, a lot of stoves, if you look at them. The proximity of those uh, controls, sometimes you'll get a control that seems very close to a burner when it really controls something that's much farther away from that burner, right? And so solving this problem of getting a good UI for a stove is tricky. I've only seen, I think, one in, in my whole life that I thought, oh, they did that not too, in a way that's not too badly. And one of the ways they did it is they did it with indicators under the, the surface so that as you turned on the dial, you saw the stove that was visually lighting up. 
underneath it or something like that. Yeah, I think it's really frustrating with stoves as well because you know that you know how they got that little diagram with the dot of where which stove that the, the it is, um, is. Yeah. that always rubs off. Um, <laughs> and I guess yeah. it's really hard to put the dial all over the stove because you kind of you know it's you know you kind of need it right at the front. Otherwise, you have to reach over. You know, a, no, a, you're a, right. A you can. Front. You can't move the dial to the back, right? Stoves are, yeah. stoves are kind of a, a, a really challenging problem to do. And I've also seen similar kinds of interfaces, similar to the stove, where you have like maybe a group of four buttons and they're arranged. So imagine that you've arranged those buttons instead of in a line, you've arranged them in a square, right? So the four buttons kind of match the layout of the four the four burners. Now you've got another proximity violation here where the, bur- the back burner knobs are actually closest to the front burners. And the, the front burner knobs are actually furthest away. You know, wherever, assuming that it's, 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 it, that diagram is right in front of these dials are put below the burners. If they're put to the left or right, you have different problems. But the, the buttons that are on the inside, the dials on the inside are actually to control the ones furthest away from them. So it's a proximity mm. violation. It's, a, it's, a, it's like I said, it's a hard problem to solve. There are, there are a number of different ways to do it, but stoves are generally not a good example of, of, of great following great, great proximity guidelines. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a tough problem to solve. You know, when it comes to design, one of the most interesting things I've found is, and I don't do this nearly as much, but used to, I would do three or four mock-ups, right? With different placement, different layout, you know, different widths and and whatnot, and you know, you would always have people say, "Well, that one feels right," or you know, or that one just looks right, whereas the other ones don't quite fit. And I think that ties into your science of UI. You could actually look at that fourth one that they picked, right, and say, "Well, the reason you like this one is because this and this and this," right. Um, Right. Well, I might, it's one of the things that sometimes happens is I might come in and say, well, if your criteria is clarity or ease of consumption, this is a fail. But if, you're, if your criteria is something pleasantly beautiful to look at, this one is a success because it's got a beautiful background gradient or whatever, something along those lines. In other words, you can, you can get people to like something and enjoy something at a at first glance or at a look, right? Mm-hmm. Which is not necessarily the, the, the criteria you might want to use. You might mm-hmm. ultimately want to use, well, I want to increase productivity or I want to increase sales or wh- whatever your criteria is, right? Gotcha. But, yeah. but, but I want to also say though, that when somebody says, you know, hey, I, that feels right to me and they're thinking about it from the usability standpoint, they're using it and it feels right. Then you're often looking at things that are quantifiable right? We're looking at less physical motion that the user is, is undertaking, right? Less mental thought, mental effort. Mm-hmm. So your cognitive load is likely lower. It often means that the presentation, like we think talk about like items, the items that are similar, like controls that are similar. Like if I have controls that, that adjust hue, saturation, and lightness, those should be together, right? They shouldn't be, you know, spread apart in different areas, right? That makes it harder to use, right? We, we kind of have a gut sense of that when things are really wrong, but when they're a little bit wrong, we generally don't have that gut sense. So, you know, one of the things I do is I'll often like, like I'll start exploring in extreme directions. And from those, that exploration, I'll come back and say, well, here are the guidelines. 
here's what here's the rules here's what we can assume for example i might say well what happens if i start tinting the background color and then mm-hmm. what happens is i start making it like a really really saturated red for example with black text on it well we get to a point where where it's like uncomfortable and it's uncomfortable mm-hmm. to read it it's hard to read it and right. and we're like okay well if i back it up and I get it back, move it back to a black background with white text or a white background with black text, and I back it up, I get more comfortable, right? So from here, I can, design, I, can, I can infer a guideline that highly saturated backgrounds are a bad idea, mm-hmm. right? I can also bring in other science on it. I can say things, I can bring in things like, well, we know that we read on the uh, black and white spectrum, the grayscale mm-hmm. spectrum. So, so we need contrast when whatever we're looking at in color is converted to black and white, which is why like a medium blue text on a medium red background is incredibly hard to read because there's no contrast on the black and white spectrum, right? So we can bring that in as well and realize that, well, when we go high saturation, depending on the hue, but like if the hue is like red, for example, we go high saturation with red, we're moving it closer to gray. We're moving the background closer to gray. We're reducing the contrast between foreground and background. And we can also bring in things like the WCAG 2.0 guidelines as well, which talk about minimum contrast for readability for folks with disabilities, right? Right. And if you look at those there, and here's the other crazy guideline is if you are going to, if you're worried about, well, whether should I build this for people with disabilities or not? My answer to you is yes, do it. Because if you start accommodating people with disabilities, the, the, the cognitive load for people that don't have the disabilities will also almost always go down. It'll also, it'll almost always be easier to use. It will. I'll give it, you know, like we talked at the beginning of the show about how I wasn't going to be, before we started, about how I wasn't going to be able to shut up. Here it comes. <laughs> Dyslexia, right? Dyslexia yeah. is a challenge, right? But one of the ways to make, make, to, to make it easier for dyslexics to read is to reduce the length of the line, right? Mm-hmm. Because that when I reach the end of the line, it's easier for me to get back to the beginning. So I can do that. And if I do that, I can also re- similarly reduce the effort to read as well for folks, folks that don't have dyslexia. Mm-hmm. And another benefit, that, another thing that I can do for, for dyslexia is I can use a font that is distinctive, that where the letters that are often transposed and rotated and flipped by dyslexics, such as the letter P and the letter Q, the uh, letter G, the letter B, those kinds of things, where those are distinctive. And there's a, a, an awesome font that I love called dyslexia. It ends in I-E. And it's, it's out there. If you're interested in looking at this, this font is gorgeous, easy to read. It's, it's, it's created the letters so that the bottom strokes of the letters are, are heavier than the, top, than the upper ones, almost giving them a visual weight. And so it, as a result, it's uh, much easier to read. So my, my daughter, who, is, who has dyslexia, is, she's got a plug-in that she uses. And she, any site she brings up, it now will replace the font with the dyslexia font, and she nice. uh, swears by it. She loves it. You know, my uh, my boss is colorblind. He's also the owner of the company, so you know the buck stops with him. And while we focus on accessibility, it's interesting to get him in the room after we've done our first pass on it, and he'll say, "Well, can we look at this, or let's suggest this, or make this change?" Because he's actually seeing it you know, uh, as right. some of our customers would. So, yes, well, probably, well, depending on what cone defect he has, he might be 
very representative or or not, depending on what, what that is. But basically, one in nine of your customers, one in 10 of your customers, male customers, is colorblind. The numbers are much lower for women, but but out of your male customers, about one in one in ten are colorblind in in one of the one of the major uh, defects. the 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 takeaway when we're talking about colorblind is you never want to use only color to differentiate, right? right? You never want to use only color to differentiate. And if you do use color to differentiate, don't use red and green, use red and blue. Because red and blue, you're laughing because I think you've seen this, you've experienced this. I have this. seen this. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I know the trick. So, yeah. Yeah. So use red and blue instead. That's the guideline there. Because no matter what, which of the, if you've got, if you're in this, the majority of folks who are colorblind, one of these defects, the L cone, the M cone, those defects the differentiating between red and blue, I'm sorry, between red and green is uh, challenging, especially if you have like a, a, a dark shade of uh, green and a light shade of red, for example, or something, you're shifting the shades a little bit, it, it can be impossible. But differentiating between blue and red with all of these major defects, if you just have one of those, is easy. I'm one of those people. And I hate yep. most weather forecasts on TV because they just love to use you know, a shade of red to a yellow to an orange and, and even some greens in there. And it's like, I can't tell anything (laughs) unless it's, unless it's the only thing I could tell is when they go, when they do go to blue and then really I'm telling more kind of the luminance values differences rather than the actual color changes. Yeah, no, I get it. That's not easy. That's why indicating only with a color is an incredibly bad idea. Also, that's also why this whole idea of the science behind great UI, it could also be called the science behind great design. And, and really, what we're talking about is how do we design some mechanism of communication? And by communication, I mean, I'm going to create something that you can sense in some way. A lot of times we think it's only visual. A lot of times we think it's only two-dimensional. But it could be three-dimensional, it could be tactile, it could be audible, right? It could be a poster, it could be a weather report on the news, right? The, the basic principles of how to communicate effectively apply to every kind of communication and every kind of sensory ability that we have. And, and it expands not only to, to humans on this planet, but to other creatures as well, and even to extraterrestrials, right? The, the basic rules that dictate our biology are likely to, we're likely to, to see similar elements to those in other creatures. For example, I'll tell you something about the way the human brain works that I didn't know till a couple of years ago. When, when something happens, like a, a firecracker goes off in the room, right? We see it, right? We see maybe a smaller, maybe a bigger than a firecracker, a small little explosion, like, like we're lighting a stove and they get a gas stove and the gas is coming out and then the spark hits and it goes, boom, like that. Right? right? We we hear the sound. That comes in first, right? We see it next. And then we get tactile feedback. And these are all coming in in about like 100 milliseconds, right? There's a, they're coming in between zero and, well, not zero, but the sound is coming in, I think, at about 40 milliseconds. And the visual is coming in at about 80 milliseconds. And tactile is coming in shortly after that. And if it's heat, it takes longer right? Well, the whole reason these are coming in at different times is because there's a mechanical process in sending the signal to the brain and then analyzing it, 
right? For example, if we touch something, that signal has got to go through our arms. And the longer our arms are, the longer it takes for that signal to come through, right? So this guide, the guidelines that are surrounding this that have to do with how long it takes to feel something and to sense something is real are likely to apply to any creature in the universe, right? Because they're going to have some size and there's going to be some limit to how fast those nerve signals can transfer. Now, nerve signals transfer in our body at different speeds. That's why when you stub your toe, you, you are aware that you've stubbed it before you feel the pain, Right. And so, so, so these things are there, right? The, 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 the rules and the guidelines, they apply to the weather report. They apply if you're making a poster. They apply if you're communicating orally, right? If I'm just speaking to you, they apply. The proximity guidelines apply. It makes sense for me to put words that are closely connected next to each other rather than have extra pauses in the right. middle right. of my sentences, <laughs> right? That doesn't make sense. What it makes me want to fill in. <laughs> yes, exactly. Have you heard of Atwood's Law? He says that anything that can be built in JavaScript eventually will be built in JavaScript. And that includes mobile apps. You can build awesome mobile apps and Apple TV and other apps with React Native. Come check us out every week as we talk about some of the ins and outs of building mobile apps with JavaScript and with React on React Native Radio. You can find it at reactnativeradio.com. Speaking of filling in, one of the interesting things you go over is fill in corners and, and yeah. how, how they or how you interpret those. Can you speak a little to that? Yeah, well, there's, the, this goes to a, a study about salience. And salience is the idea that our brain inherently believes there's importance from something that we see. Okay. And so, and, and one of the things that our brains naturally do is we attribute salience to sharper corners. So the sharper a corner is, the more important we feel it is. Okay. So if you look at evolutionarily, how that might've developed, we can start looking at things like weapons and we can look at things like thorns in our environment right? The sharper they are, the more important they are to be aware of those things, right? If something's very sharp, it can do more damage to me, right? So sharp corners are naturally salient. Now, if we are presenting a button, the question is, do we want the corners to appear salient? Is there something about the button where those corners should be salient or interpreted as important? And if there is not, and in most cases there's not, then we want to round the corners. We want to, that which brings emphasis to the label of the button or the picture in the button, the contents of the button, right? We want to not have those things that are, you know, unimportant be essentially flagged or tagged for our brain to think that they're important, right? Imagine a world where every window had rough, jagged edges around it, right? Hmm. You can imagine, yeah, you're laughing. You, you can imagine that it would be like, oh yeah, that would be tough. To, to look at, I wouldn't want to look at it. We inherently know when we go to an extreme that it's bad, right? right? And so if we roll it back a little bit, we can come up with a guideline that says, okay, look, only have corners, sharp corners, when we want there to be salience. A great example is a call out, right? Or like a speech bubble in a cartoon. I want to have a sharp corner where I'm pointing to the character who's speaking or the item I'm calling out but I want to have rounded corners everywhere else. 
Speaking of which, I've done a little bit of research. I don't have conclusive evidence or conclusive explanation as to why this is the case, but you don't want incredibly rounded corners. If you, if you start rounding, moving your way to a circle, the roundness starts to take on an importance of its own, hmm. at least for me when I look at it. When I look at it, if it's extra round, I'm like, why am I? I'm, I'm looking at that, and I think I know why. The reason why is it has to do with how we read. We read by recognizing words, and we recognize words by recognizing letters, and we recognize letters by recognizing features. We have features detector, feature detectors in our brains. They look for things like curves, right? A, a, a quarter curve, a half curve, something along those lines. Uh, they look for intersections. They look for angles, right? Connected points, right? For the example, the letter N has got three lines in it, an uppercase N, three lines, and it's got two connectors, right? Two, two kind of intersection, connecting pieces. The letter X has two lines and an intersection right in the middle. So our feature detectors, and it's got those two lines that form the X, have got four endpoints at each of the corners. I mean, at each of the ends of the lines, each of the letter X, right? So, so I'm looking, if I'm recognizing the letter X, my feature detectors are going to activate for four, looking for four endpoints and an intersection, right? That's what I'm going to be looking for. Well, I think the reason why if you round too much, the roundness calls attention to itself is that it starts to trigger the feature detectors and our feature detectors want to give it some meaning, want to give it higher weight because it looks like the corner of the letter O, for example, something like that. It's a theory. Yeah, that might explain, you know, why kind of like polka dot outfits kind of stand out, you know, walk by somebody, you know, just any old pattern, you know, you really don't notice it. But if they're polka dots, yeah. Yeah, we also attribute meaning to repetition. So as well, right? If we see the same thing multiple times, we that calls our attention to it as well. Well, if it's, I guess, there's also the opposite of that, which is we we see it everywhere. Our brain eventually filters it out and concludes it's noise. So hmm. there's there's kind of a little bit of both of that going on there. But our first reaction is there's relevance here. Are you saying that there's no art to des- to UI design? It's yeah, all that's lo- so. I want to say that's a lovely question. That's a really, I love that question. So I think, well, I, let me say this. I think the answer to that is it can be if you want it to be. It can be all science if you want to. Because ultimately, the, the most constraints that we're going for, they, they, they fall into a couple of categories that science can totally fulfill. For example, one of the constraints might be effective communication. Another one might be more sales, right? Another one might be, I want to deceive. I want to hide and obscure information right? And usually that's an uncomfortable guideline if you're a designer, right? But that is, that's, that, that happens, right? I want to hide information. How can I do it? A great example of this is the EULAs for software. Mm-hmm. The goal is we want you to install the software. Do we want you to read it? No. So we're going to make it all the text small. We're going to make it all uppercase, which is going to drop your reading speed down, right? Because you're not used to reading in all uppercase, and we're going to put in a tiny window making you scroll, and we're going to give you a big fat I accept button on the bottom, right? So if your goal is to not have people pursue information, you can present it in that way, like most EULAs are done, mm-hmm. right? Something along those lines. And you can use all science to solve that problem. For me, in my designs, I'm almost never really doing art at all. Almost never that I can think of in my doing that. I have a... I have a a layout that I built on my live coding stream. It's a Dungeons and Dragons map editor. 
Mm-hmm. And it allows you to drop items down, kind of like PowerPoint allows you to drop items down on, on a presentation. And you can select items like you can in PowerPoint. And you can group items like you can in PowerPoint. But the thing that this has that PowerPoint doesn't have is when you select an item, buttons for manipulating that item appear all around it. And if I select two items, buttons that now work with two items also appear, like alignment. I can align left, right, center, all those things. And if I select three items, I can now, buttons that work with three items uh, also appear, like distributing evenly. So if I have three items, I want to make them evenly spaced, vertically or horizontally, I get two additional buttons. Now, one of the things I did on this, so all of these, by the way, I'm using icons that I'm building inside of PowerPoint. So I'm building the icons in PowerPoint, pasting them into the code that's turning them into XAML. That's a code rush feature. So it's just turning it into XAML that I'm, that I'm putting inside there. So there's a little bit of artwork in the design, but, but for the most part, really not, right? We're talking about alignment buttons, buttons to show alignment, buttons to show flipping, buttons to show rotation, right? Mm-hmm. If, you, if I said, if I, if I had 100 people and i say, give me, create a rotation button for me, we would, I bet you 90 of them or 80 of them would be really close to the same. It'd be an arrow kind of curved, right? That's your rotation button. So there's, so, so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get an icon that is very quickly consumed and understood. Also, the placement of these buttons infers what it does. If I want to align top, the align top button is at the top of the selection. If I've got multiple selections, if I'm aligning the bottom, the line bottom button's at the bottom of it, right? And, and as I've used this, the more and more I use this, the more I think if this is a model for next generation user interfaces for any items that I have multiple items of that I want to deal with selections and do arrangements on. It's faster to work with the, the UI I've created to lay things out than it is PowerPoint. Mm. And so there's not, there's not much art there. The, the, the thing I was going to get to is the one thing I did that was unusual in this whole thing is my distribute buttons, I found that visually they were kind of close to the aligned center and the line, line center vertical and line center horizontal because I, I had, you know, three items to show here's how I'm aligning them, right? Here's the centers of them, different sizes. And I'm like, how do I distinguish these from the others? I could use a different color. Well, what I ended up doing is I ended up making them bigger. I ended up making them longer in the way that they work. And it, I know this this is kind of hard. I'm, you know, I apologize because I'm kind of describing a very visual two-dimensional user interface using only words, but, but it stands out, right? The buttons are interesting in that they're not consistent with the others. So I've got two buttons that stand out for distribute. But again, I can hit those buttons faster than, than if, they weren't other, if they were otherwise not distinguishable. I can mm-hmm. see them. I can hit them faster. It works for colorblind people, right? I'm not using color to differentiate. The buttons are nice and big, easy to hit. The whole thing really is, it is a, it's kind of a sales pitch for changing the way PowerPoint works or any other app that does this kind of thing. Have the buttons all around. And that was my bit of art that I did. But I think that the, I, but I also think just to fully answer this question, if, if, if an artist were to come along and say, well, I know you've done your science and here's my art instead, I'm totally happy with that as long as it doesn't violate any of the guidelines. If it violates the guidelines, then I kind of have to speak up and say, okay, here's the problem. The text, for example, is harder to read. In 2005, Microsoft Office, the last step of their install said, pick a background, pick a background for your toolbar buttons, right? And they gave, they gave you kind of a low contrast artistic background to choose from. 
And it made no sense at all. It was low contrast, thank goodness, but it made no sense to behind those buttons to put pictures of like, you know, underwater, you know, sea creatures, right? It just, it just made no sense at all from a, from a usability standpoint of the app. It may have made sense from other, from other reasons. So, so in, this, in this example, if I was on the office team, I would have said, makes no sense. What's the justification? Right. If it if it does no harm, if the art does no harm, then we're good to go. Right. Mm-hmm. But if the art does harm or degrades the experience, or even worse, makes it so that we can't accomplish our goals, we accomplish our goals with less effectiveness. Whatever our goals are, right? Which could be they could be good or they could be evil goals, right? But if we can't accomplish our goals, then we have to go back to the artist and we have to say this needs it. We need to change this because of this and because of cognitive science and because of the way the brain works, right? The thing is, the trouble is this. So my wife, by the way, right now is, is, is getting a master's degree in instructional design. And she was showing me some of the coursework that they have. And the example in the coursework was, don't do this. It showed a bad example. Do this instead. And it showed four examples. And it was talking about, you know, visual weight and emphasis and contrast. Mm-hmm. I think it had five examples. And with four out of the five examples, I had strong negative reactions to the, their positive do this. And I wanted to do a, add another column. I wanted to cross out the author's one and say, no, do <laughs> this one instead. That's and my point from this is that instructional designers are getting lessons that don't have the cognitive science behind it. So they're mm. saying, for example, have the weight feel you know, like it you know, is right, as an example right? Or something like that. Visual weight should feel good, right? Or whatever. They, they're, given, they're given guidelines that they can't quantify, they can't work with. They don't understand why it's important. And so there's, it's almost an emperor's new clothes kind of world that they're creating where the designer kind of has to take a leap of faith and then start believing in themselves and in that, that innate ability to kind of detect what's going on and to feel that, which is a way to do it, but it's faster if you just understand the rules. If you understand the rules and the guidelines, then it's faster to get to the point of, well, this is okay. This is not, this is not doing any harm, so you're okay. Gradients are another great example of where things go badly. And, and the, 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 the guideline for gradients is small differences between start and finish. You want small, almost undetectable differences if you're going to use a gradient. Make those undetectable. If you have a wide span, you've got a big problem. And one of the reasons you have a problem is that color, you now take away color as a communicating device. I cannot use color anymore to communicate information. So even with colorblind people, I can use red and blue to augment symbols, right? To give you, to send you the same information, the same indication on two different channels. And I'm jumping, I know I'm jumping all over the place. I'm in channels now all of a sudden. Channels <laughs> are ways of communication, right? So I can communicate to you with a symbol. Like I can have a stock indicator, up arrow, that says stock's going up. And I can have another stock indicator, down arrow, stock's going down. I can augment that information with additional channel color. And I can make your up arrow be green or blue, better blue, right? And my down arrow be red. And so now what's happening is you recognize more quickly if you get the same signal on two different channels, right? You get it with greater certainty. So in your usability of it, you're less likely to make mistakes or to misinterpret the data that's being presented. And with that, I'm like, kind of like, wait, where did I start with? Was there a question mm-hmm. I well, was supposed to answer? Well, can, can, I, can I speak to the, to the art piece, right? Yes. Can, can you separate out the art and the science? And I think in certain instances, you can. For instance, CSS Zen Garden, and I'm not even sure if it's still around. 
but right, people taking CSS and doing interested creative things with it, they're not necessarily doing it as a function that they want the user to follow through with. They're showing what can be done with CSS and they're creating something interesting or beautiful or dynamic, right? Right. right. On the flip side, these days, uh, a lot of sites are, you know, the science behind UI and UX is evolving and a lot of sites are focusing on, we want the user to do this. And so you're taking that science and focusing on that more than necessarily the, the artistic creative right. aspects. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, no, I'm, 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 totally with, I'm totally with you on that, right? Art, I think, is freer to exist if there are no guidelines. If right. I don't have a guideline or a goal at the end, then, then, then art can totally exist and we can have beautiful things. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And the more, the more important it is to have some sort of goal achieved from the design, then, mm-hmm. then, then the, the more we have to be careful or we have to, we have to check at least that mm-hmm. the art is not detri- detri- having a detrimental effect on achieving those goals. Absolutely. Yeah, so the art, the art needs to complement the science. Yes. Yeah. 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 So actually, in my experience, I feel like most uh, most developers are probably not great at um, UI design. So, so I'm just wondering what your opinion of things like um, like you know material design and those various UI frameworks. Do you reckon that they're good tools to use for for developers for to to to, to create designs that are that adhere to the to, to the science that you've been talking? No, I don't. Okay. I think that I think that. Well, here's the thing. I've found that even in design guidelines from large companies, that there are, there are mistakes. Now, we're getting fewer and fewer of those, but there's still, there are still companies that are putting out design guidelines with major mistakes and with guidelines that don't have any solid backing behind them. So there's some of those aspects. I guess what my point is, is that the rules are more valuable than a book telling you what to do. That's, that's I think, my point. Yeah, I, I, I think I flat out will, will, will say that and I'll contend that because you can, you can also do things with the rules that you can't do with, with, with a book or, or a spec. You, you can create things that are new that have never been built before and make them work, right? Almost, you know, to some degree, the example that I'm talking about with that I built in the, my live coding show, which I'll plug right now, twitch.tv slash code rushed. C-O-D-E-R-U-S-H-E-D, E-D at the end of Code Rush, um, on twitch.tv. That right there is not, you're not going to find that in any guideline, anywhere, in any book. And yet, I think it's compelling. I think that there's something to it, and it, it follows, and it was built using the guidelines, right? One of the guidelines is reduced mouse movement, reduced physical activity, physical motion. And so that's why the buttons are close to the selection instead of being up at the top or in the right or the left or something along those lines. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. 